Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this evening that you have called us by your grace to believe the gospel. The gospel reveals to us that we are more sinful than we would readily admit. That our sins deserve the condemnation of your righteous judgment and it carries with it the sentence of death. But your gospel also tells us in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness for all of our sin for those who confess. There is the gift of eternal life that is freely given to those who come to you. And many here this evening have received this forgiveness and eternal life and their hearts are full of gratitude at this moment. And we praise you, Heavenly Father, because there is no God like you and because we are complete in you. And may it be the experience even of those who have not savored the mercy of Christ. We pray that even as we open your word, it will take deep root in our heart and bear the fruit of repentance and faith for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, please turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I will not be reading the text for us at the beginning, but my hope is that I will carefully walk through the text and let the word of God speak to us. And to that end, I would encourage you to take your Bibles and follow with me as we look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, this is a psalm of David. This is a psalm of confession, and this should help us when we are in sin, we can turn to this psalm and meditate in God's word. And as you can see from the title, it was composed after prophet Nathan came and confronted David concerning his sin with Bathsheba, and the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. We'll see that it's, it's just above the Psalm 51. It says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We all know the man named David. He was the youngest of seven brothers, and he spent his early years as a shepherd of his family sheep. David was a humble man whom God chose as the king over Israel. And the reason God put his love uniquely upon David wasn't because he was tall or handsome or because he was rich or any of those things. The reason God chose David was that there was something much deeper about David. David was known as the man after God's own heart. And in this particular episode of David's life, as much, as, as much of respect and love and affection we have for him, it still shocks us and scandalizes us, our senses, that a man who had a relationship with the Lord could in fact engage in such heinous activity. You don't have to be a Christian to have your sense of right and wrong scandalized by the kind of evil that David worked in that particular period of his lifetime. David's fall was a famous one. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find David in a day when he's supposed to be out at battle, we don't know why, he stayed home. But we do know that he was doing what he wasn't supposed to be doing. And that opened up the door for trouble. It is an unspeakable crime David is guilty of, but in God's kindness, God sends a prophet, and the prophet confronts David through a parable. He tells him a story. And I will read for us from 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
I will read for you what Nathan said to David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who had done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And this psalm before us is a response to this confrontation of Nathan. It is a response to the conviction that he was guilty before God. And as we work through Psalm 51, I want to break it into three parts for us. Verses 1 through 4, David is calling out for mercy. And then in verses 5 through 13, he's pleading with the Lord. Basically, he is saying, fix me, Lord. I have messed up. I have made a fool out of myself. I want you to make me right. And then in verses 14 to 19, he's telling the Lord, if the Lord, you will have mercy on me and fix me, you will get the glory. So three sections, verses 1 to 4, he's calling out for God for mercy. 
And in verses 5 through 13, he's asking God, pleading with God to fix him. And then verses 14 to 19, when God will listen to his prayers and have mercy on him and fix him, God will get the glory. So we will approach the psalm in these three sections, and we will look at the first point, a call to mercy. Look at verse 1, what David says. He says, have mercy on me, O God. That is how the ESV renders it. We have a footnote there, and down in the margin we will see, or be gracious to me, O God. I think that is, act, uh, that is actually a, bit, a, a better version. Be gracious to me, O God. So this is the first plea we can see here. And his second plea is at the end of verse 1, where he says, blot out my transgressions. And the David appeals in between these two pleas, he appeals to something in God as a basis for these requests. In other words, David is not saying to the Lord, God, you, you have to be gracious to me and blot out my transgressions of my inherent worth because I killed Goliath, because I was victorious over the Philistines. No, this appeal is not based on David's worth or David's effort. He's not saying, look at me, I am blessed, am I a blessed man meditating on the Torah? You ought to be gracious to me for this reason. No, David knows that is not how he can turn to God. And it's astonishing, David knows God's character. David is saying, be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love. We can see the same language in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 4, which we read earlier in our call to worship, where it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So David is saying, God, I am not asking for grace because of who I am or because of what I have done. I am asking you for grace because of who you are. According to your steadfast love, be gracious to me. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So according to verse 1, David is asking two things, and these things will be developed in all through this psalm. First, he's asking for forgiveness. I think that is what is the appeal, be gracious to me, means. Forgive me. Don't punish me for my sin in accordance to what I deserve. And then secondly, he's asking for cleansing. Blot out my transgressions. And so he continues this idea of cleansing in verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here is David, he is using the language of the book of Leviticus, and because the words here, wash me and cleanse me, are used. These are the terms that very frequently are used in the book of Leviticus to describe the way in which the Israel could achieve ritual purity through the sacrifices, through the cleansings that are described there in the book. And David is saying to God, I need you, God, to do this for me. You wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This is a very biblical prayer from David, if you see here. He's recollecting from Exodus and Leviticus of the graciousness of God, his mercy, his steadfast love, and he's using the language of washing and cleansing for his sin. 
And by asking God to cleanse him, he's not in any way dodging the responsibility. He's not saying, oops, God, I made a mess. Can you clean up for me? He's not backing out from taking responsibility, but he's saying, wash me for my iniquity. This is my problem. I did this. Cleanse me from my sin. Now, when we think about it, this seems strange, maybe for some of you. If you make a mess, we got to take responsibility and clean up. Why should someone else on our behalf should come and clean up our mess? In fact, this is how we treat others sometimes, right? Well, you got yourself into this mess. You better figure out how you will come out of it. I am not lifting one finger to help you. Enough is enough. Every religion on this earth, in one way or the other, has this kind of worldview. It's, it's up to us to figure out our lives. We sin and we atone for our sins. We sin, we do bad, and we make up by doing good. And hope the good that we do outweighs the bad that we have done. But what we see here is that we are sinners. And as much as we take responsibility to our sin, both before God and with one another when we sin, we should first learn from the Bible how to apologize and how to cry out for mercy. When you go to apologize, don't be abstract and general. Like, you know, something's happened between us and I regret that those things happened between us. I hope we can move on from this. No, we ought to be direct. I have wronged you. I have disrespected you. I have transgressed against you. And I'm asking your forgiveness. There is this conviction that is on him. His guilt within him is weighing him down. And that is what David is modeling for us here. He says in verse 4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now think about this. David says he knows his transgressions, and his sin is ever before him. He did marry Uriah's wife, you know, and Bathsheba's presence in front of David would be a constant reminder of what he has done. David is painfully aware of his sinfulness. There is no sound sleep, no peace, no escape. The shame is strong and the humiliation is heavy. Regret is almost suffocating to his soul. The words, you are that man, are echoing in his ears. It is the voice that God sets in the hearts of his people that you have sinned against me is what David is hearing. Now when he says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I think before we look into this verse, it will be good to understand the distinction between the conviction by God's spirit and having a conscience weighed down by our guilt. There is a difference, and I think it is important to know. You see, everyone to some degree has conscience. It is a gift of common grace from God that tells people that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. And at times, our conscience can be convicted even though we do not really care about God's opinion about our sin. Sometimes we feel really bad, worse, and frustrated and disappointed with ourselves, 
but it would have nothing to do with God. Sometimes what bothers us is, how could we do such a thing? Or that you are caught again. We don't like being exposed and being embarrassed, and we don't like the consequences of our sin. We saw that in 2 Samuel, when Nathan the prophet is pronouncing judgment over David, he says that the sword will not depart from the house. His wives will be given to neighbors. Evil will rise against David in his own household. His shame will be public and scandalous, and even the child that Bathsheba has conceived in sin will be taken away. And you know what David says? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't go into the self-pity and say, oh, poor me. This is too much, God. I cannot take the consequences of the sin. Maybe this is too harsh. Please don't do that. But he humbly acknowledges it. Conviction isn't feeling bad about the consequences of our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is a kind of sadness that is worldly, so just feeling bad doesn't help anybody. So friend, if you are not a Christian, and if you feel bad when you sin, think for a moment that ultimately you have wronged a holy God, and one day you will have to give account to him. You have rebelled against your maker, and you need to come to Christ for your sin. Don't harden your heart, but salvation is for you today. That is why David says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's not denying that he has sinned against Bathsheba. He's not denying that he has sinned against Uriah or anybody else that was harmed through what happened. But what he means is that the most significant person against whom I have transgressed here is God. That is the person with whom I have, I'm in covenant with. It was a personal affront to Yahweh because it was Yahweh with whom David was in covenant. And it was Yahweh commands that David transgressed. And what David says here corresponds in a couple of significant ways what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In that passage, Nathan says that God says, you despise the word of the Lord. Thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not murder. He committed adultery and he murdered. He despised and he goes on to say, the Lord goes on to say, you have despised me. And this, I think, is prompting David to say, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So dear brother, dear sister, is this how you think and feel when you sin? Do you see that ultimately you have sinned against God and his holy name? Or do you look at your consequences and feel bad about your sin? Or you try to justify your sin and make excuses. And then he goes and says in that same verse, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see that? He's saying, against you I have sinned, and he's saying, so that you may be justified in your words 
and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David is saying, so that you can be righteous in what you say and blameless in your judgment. What David is saying here is that because of what he has done, when the Lord brings justice against him, there will be no excuses. There will be no counter arguments. David is guilty and God's justice is going to be righteously applied. God is pure in his judgment. He is holy in his wrath and he justified in his actions. Meaning, no one can say after his sins, receives the just punishment and say, it's not fair. It's not fair. No one can ever say that. But praise God, it doesn't end there. Praise God, the story of the Bible is not Adam sinned against the Lord and God obliterated them from the face of the earth. This is not the way it goes. And so David continues in verse 5 and following. What we are now going to see is that he is calling for mercy and now he is asking God to fix him. He is crying out to the Lord to make him right. And what we will see is this encounter of God with holiness will expose the depths of David's problem. And these are the depths we should be thinking about. The depth, the deep, the depth that David plunges into here is unparalleled outside the Bible. We don't, this kind of, we don't get this kind of analysis of the human condition outside the Bible unless it is from the people who are writing about the scriptures. So look at verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Notice how we see behold linking these two verses. And what David is saying here is that, God, what pleases you is truth and wisdom, and I was born in sin, conceived by sinners, and how does truth and wisdom come from me, given the fact that I have the sin from Adam? And this is true from every descendant of Adam. There is no child in this room, not even one, to whom the parents have thought for a moment, hey honey, we need to send our son to the selfishness classes. He need to learn. Poor fellow. He doesn't have any clue what selfishness and self-centeredness looks like. No, not one. No one does that. We, we were not placed innocent and sinless and fresh in a pristine world. Everyone is born in sin. Having been conceived by sinners, we all live in a world pervaded with, by sin. How then are, are we to do what is holy? Well, David is not reciting the circumstances of his birth to make excuses. I think what he's doing is he's making clear the need. I was born in sin, and if my mother who gave birth to me is, was born in sin, then I need something beyond the power of this world if I'm going to do what is holy. So this statement, verses 5, and, and really calls into question whether a human being can please God. With this statement in verse 6, he's saying God's standard cannot be changed, and because he is in sin and conceived in sin, and God is the one who is true, right, just, wise, and holy, David asks God to fix him. He asks God to change him. He prays to God to the work on him, the transformation that will result in him being someone who loves holiness and be someone who acts on that holiness. 
So verse 7, again, using that language of Leviticus, David says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then in verse 8, Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Bones that God has justly broken. Sorrow that was experienced because of what David did. And he was asking that to be replaced. David is saying for the stains of the sins to be cleansed. He recognizes that in order for this to be true, he wants his heart disposition also to be redirected. And then in verse 9 he says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. We see two requests here. Here, the first is that God would apply the almighty power to make it so that his all-knowing nature is unaware of David's sin. David is asking so that his all-seeing eyes, God's all-seeing eyes, will not see his sin. This is a request for complete forgiveness. A forgiveness with no remainder of wrath. Hide your face from my sins. Make it where you do not see it. Make it where it is gone. And then the second request has to do with the consequences of David's sin. Blot out all my iniquities. The awareness of those iniquities would mean separation between God and David. And David is saying, make it where you don't see any sin and make it that those iniquities are no longer on record. Blot them out and if God will grant this relationship with God, would may it be right. Now let me take you back into verse 8 to just reflect about this. Let me hear joy and gladness, he says. What we see here is that there is a profound connection between our sin and our moods. Holiness really does make us happy. It really does, and sin, it spoils everything. And this cry from David that God would cause him to have joy and gladness shows that he is experiencing the woes of the sorrow of sin. And the reference that the broken bones, this shows that God's heavy hand of discipline has come down on him. Crush him, him. but look at what the prayer reveals. The prayer reveals that David believes that if he will repent, that if he will make this petition, God has such mercy that he can cleanse and heal and restore and make him happy again. And then in verse 10, he continues, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now this word here for create, this word we, we know from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning God created the world. So David is asking God to do a new creation work on his heart. David is asking God to make him something that he did not previously have. I was born in sin, the people who conceived me, conceived me in sin, and I am asking you for a new heart that is totally renovated. And as he's making his request, he's turning it at his attention from the past to the sin that needed to be blotted out, and he's looking to the future. Create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. The right spirit can mean something like an established heart. Give me a spirit that is grounded and rooted and is firm and one which will not give way. 
So he's asking for a new heart and a firm or right spirit because he wants to continue in willing obedience and holiness. And so in verse 11, he's asking that the Lord will not do to him what the Lord did to Saul. If we were to look at, back at the narrative of Samuel, we will see that at various points, at several significant times, prophet Samuel comes to Saul to tell him to do something. And Saul rebels. Saul just doesn't do it. And eventually the Lord says to Saul, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has rejected you from being king. And he sought out a neighbor who is better than you. And I think the feature that makes David better than Saul is not that David was taller or stronger or more gifted or anything like that. I mean, Saul, we, we, we will see in Samuel that he, that he is none better than in all of Israel. What makes David better than Saul is that he repented. When he was confronted with his sin, which Saul never does, and when Samuel goes to anoint David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, tells us that the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, left Saul and came to David. So I think what David is talking about here in verse 11 when he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's saying, don't banish me and your anointing of me being king over your people. I don't think he's talking about the indwelling of the spirit that we experience in the New Testament. I think what he's saying is that don't make the consequences of my transgressions end my reign as the king of Israel. Rather than being removed from his place as God's anointed, he wanted to continue in his presence. Now, every time when we sin, we are not in a right relationship with God. Like David, we are to ask God, I would like to be in your presence, in your covenant relationship. So yes, when we sin, we will grieve the Holy Spirit of God and we will hurt him and our relationship is damaged, but it is never removed. And the glorious news of the scripture is that people who come like that, they will have their requests granted. So friend, if you're holding on to any sin, come to God today and ask for his mercy and his grace. And look at verses 12. Verses 12 and 13, he says, Restore to me the joy of his salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. What David is saying is that, God, if you will restore me, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners like me will return to you. We, we can see that even in verse 6, which, which God delights that is his truth. And the wisdom which God teaches is going to be meditated through the restoration of David the sinner. Now think for a moment how this has worked. For thousands of years, with untold numbers of people through Psalm 51. Think about how many people have learned about God's ways through Psalm 51. This prayer has been granted. This prayer has been answered by the Lord. The Lord has restored to him the joy of salvation and upheld him with a willing spirit. And David is teaching transgressors God's ways. So fix me, David prays in verses 5 through 13. And for now, we will look at verses 14 to 19, where David is praying that God will get glory from all of this. 
Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Blood guiltiness. What does that mean? Yes, Uriah's dead. There is blood on David's hand. I am guilty and I am asking you to deliver me from that guilt. O God of my salvation. Now look at this re remarkable statement once again. David sinned, and what does the law say? Thou shalt not murder. And the law explicitly states what the consequences of those who do murder. So if God is going to do what is righteous, David has to experience the consequences. But what, is, what does he say here? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Wait a minute. God's righteousness is going to get David punished. And how then is he able to sing of God's righteousness? Because yes, our God's righteousness upholds that standard of God's truth. It doesn't revise down the standard of God's holiness. God's holiness, God's truth, and God's righteousness that is upheld, but he forgives those who transgress, but those who turn and repent. Those who transgress but rely on him for salvation, somehow God is righteously going to declare them righteous. I know for all of you at this point, you must be thinking, that is because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. And yes, friends, it is because of and only through Jesus Christ, our Lord, David is able to say this. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24 to 26, we see how God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation because he needed to be shown as righteous because of passing over of former sins. So sins like this, what David did, God passed over them. He didn't punish them. And then to show that he is righteous and then to show that he upholds the holiness, God sends Jesus to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies the just wrath of God. And this is good news. And this righteousness of God is the reason for sinners to sing God's righteousness, His holiness, and sing praise to Him. And because of His mercy that you have received and Christ's righteousness, you will now love God and His holiness and His righteousness, and you will walk in a way that pleases God, and you will worship Him. That's why he says, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 14, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. If you experience this good news, friends, your lips can't stay closed and your lips will open and it will be God opening them because this almighty power will have been exercised on your behalf to make where your sins are not seen and your stains are not there anymore. And your heart is new and the Holy Spirit is not being removed from you. Instead, it is renewed and you are experiencing the joy of salvation. And you will teach sinners God's ways means you will not only repent and sing joyful songs of God's righteousness, you will also teach others to repent of their ways and turn to God.
And then he says in verses 16 to 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David here is explaining that the God of the Bible is not the God who just has bloody animals on his altar. He just doesn't want us to do our religious routines. That is not what God wants. What God wants is for people to try to obey and, go, and what God wants is for people to honor him and to offer thanksgiving to him. And that can be expressed through those bloody animals on the altar. But if you got the bloody animals and you do not have the desire to obey God or the desire to please him and honor God, then the bloody animals are useless. So friends, David says, you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God doesn't turn away a heart like that. So if God is giving you that kind of heart, don't resist him. If you don't have this kind of heart, ask God to renew your spirit. For us Christians, our relationship with God is not cut off, but it is damaged when we sin and it needs to be healed. David knows what pleases God is repentance, genuine, thorough repentance. That is, sorry because of how it has grieved and hurt our God. And that the public ramifications of David's sin is then addressed in verse 18 and 19. You know, if David is restored and if David experiences God's favor, all of Israel experiences God's restoring favor. If wrath falls on David because of his sin, wrath falls, of, falls on Israel. And David is acknowledging this reality as a king of Israel, and he, he is the representative of his people, and he's saying to the Lord, essentially, don't give us what we deserve. But rather, in verse 18, he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Don't make it so that the enemy army comes in your wrath, hands breaks down your walls. Then if you will do this, Lord, then will you delight in right sacrifices burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Consider what David is saying here. If you will forgive our sin, we will experience your character, your mercy, your steadfast love, and we will respond to you in the way that you would want us to respond. And at that time, when we offer the sacrifices with a right heart attitude, you will accept them and you will be glorified and your name would be worshipped. So David is saying, Lord, make us yourself known to us in all your forgiving glory and receive our worship. According to the New Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, since Adam's fall into sin, we see that the judgment of God on mankind. And in this psalm, what we are seeing is that we are seeing the mercy of God. The guilty repent and return to the Lord, and the Lord forgives having put forward as the sacrifice of propitiation. Which means everybody that resonates with Psalm 51 and everyone who prays in this way will be washed white as snow and will be clothed with white fine linen. 
and the bride will be glorious, washed by the water of the word without spot or stain or any blemish. This is you, my dear brother. This is you, my sister. Repent of your sins today. Look to Jesus for salvation and go therefore and serve your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that our sins, though they are many, your mercy is more. Thank you, Father, for not counting our sins, but redeeming us through the precious blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that you have bestowed on us, which we do not deserve. And we thank you that your grace is marvelous. We pray that, Lord, that even now, as we're thinking about the life of David, help us, Father, to not cover up our own sin. Give us grace, Lord, to confess our sin and repent and look to Christ for salvation. Look to Christ for reconciliation. Give us grace, Lord, that we would walk in this way and help us, Father, to not rely on our own strength. Give us a broken heart and a contrite spirit, Lord, so that we could acknowledge your name and we would look to you for salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.